this morning we have come to Revelation chapter 3, now having completed chapter 2 and the first four of the seven letters to the churches. We take up the fifth this morning, which is the church at Sardis. Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, listen as I read God's word. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, the words of him who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have not found your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you have received and heard. Keep it and repent. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Yet you have a Still a few names in Sardis, people who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments, and I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray. Lord, as your word is opened and as we consider this passage, we always open it with the sense that there is so much in there for us to gain and receive and understand and grow in. And we know that in one single session, it is difficult to take in the totality of it. But God, I pray that the elements within this passage that we would direct our attention to today God, that you would stir our hearts and minds with a clarity of understanding, that you would use it by your spirit to bring the necessary awareness, understanding, growth, change, transformation, correction. God, we pray that you would use your word to have powerful effect in the hearts of your people to hear this. God, grant that I would speak your word faithfully and clearly. And just uh, bless your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we take up the church in Sardis, it is not unlike all of the churches at this particular time in history. It uh, is somewhat different from our location in our day and in our era because we don't generally go around town and see temples with idols and shrines and all kinds of overtly pagan practices. And so uh, sometimes we feel like there can be a little bit of a disconnect because these were such idolatrous societies. But the wonderful thing about God's word is that it is constantly, always, and unchangingly relevant. Even though we may not have false gods in the way that they did, we still, much like them, suffer and struggle under forms of idolatry. Really, indeed, anything that we live for other than the glory of God, anything that we serve other than the pleasure of God, that is our idol. Our idol could be a loved one. Our idol could be ourself. Um, Covetousness can be an idolatry. Physical pleasure can be an idol. An idol. All of these things 
that, that drive men to do what they do and decide what they decide, these things are our idols today. And so let's not think of us as being somehow advanced and, and uh, well ahead of where they were at that time, way back in history. The sins that come forth from the hearts of men do not really change from season to season. Maybe what they're clothed in, what they're covered with, the packaging changes to some degree. But what's inside the package remains unchanged. It is sinful and self-serving at its core. It serves the created or the creature rather than the creator. And so we want to consider this um, church at Sardis today. And like the others, it was a place where there was a great degree of idolatry and festivals and feasts and all those kinds of things that were common in that society. It was also a city where there was uh, a great degree of uh, commerce and marketing and uh, textiles and various things like this. But what Sardis is most known for really in history is that Sardis was uniquely placed as a city that was sort of on a cliffside or a precipice. So if an enemy wanted to come against Sardis, they had only one way to approach them. And that one way could be isolated, guarded, fortified, protected, which made it seemingly to the people who lived there impenetrable. They could defend it and no one could defeat them. The sense uh, of their, their strength, their protective uh, position was so strong that instead of uh, fulfilling the responsibilities that they would off need to do, where they would have the entire city, as oft was in those days, surrounded by walls and guarded by guards in the evening. If you're guarding the section of the wall, then on the other side of the wall is nothing but a cliff. There's nothing but steep slopes, very difficult to climb. There's no way it would seem that an army could come and enter through those. The people become complacent. And though the city was placed in a position that seemed impenetrable, it has two historic defeats in its history. One of those historic defeats was in the 540s. BC under King Cyrus II. The story goes along the lines uh, with this, and another one was in uh, 214 BC with Antiochus III. The story goes along these lines that they become complacent. They become sleepy and tired, and rather than uh, guarding the wall like they should and being on the lookout with preparedness and readiness for enemies that might come against them, those who were on the side that felt secure, considered themselves safe, they would engage themselves in other things, various games, conversations, activities, and slumber. A little sleep and get a little rest at night rather than watch because anyways, it's not possible for anyone to come and get us, right? Well, the story goes concerning one of these two great historic defeats that Somehow, it seems, a soldier fell asleep close to the wall and his 
helmet of his armor fell off the wall and down the side of the precipice into the ravine. And he came out of a narrow breach in the wall, and the enemy that was encamped on the opposite side was watching. And they watched that helmet fall, and they watched that soldier come out of a small gate, and he go down, descending on this little trail, get his helmet and carry it back up that trail and into the gate. But since it's safe and since it's secure and nothing seems to ever happen and all is well, just goes in the gate and doesn't lock the gate. Well, the enemy saw that path. They quietly descended into the ravine, followed the same trail that he had followed up the side of the precipice, entered in through that open door. And once the entire army had crossed and entered in at night, they took them and defeated the city. So the city that was impenetrable and undefeatable was defeated because of negligence, oversight, and error, complacency, distraction. And this is something that uh, is such an interesting element in the history of Sardis. But let's look at this. Much like Sardis had that reputation of being a city or a town that was impenetrable and undefeatable the church in sardis also had a reputation the first thing we see here is that the church in sardis had a robust reputation it says in revelation chapter 3 verse 1 and to the angel of the church in sardis write the words of him who has the seven spirits of god and the seven stars so again referring to christ and and his his authority his power over the churches over the spirits over all that's going on it just speaks of his comprehensive sovereignty and headship over the churches and he says this i know your works as we've considered in the past if you're doing well when he says i know your works it's an encouraging thing to hear yes wonderful the one who rewards knows our works but if you are doing poorly, I know your works. That's a frightening thing to hear. On this occasion, the challenge is this. This church has a robust reputation, and it seems that they themselves have also bought into their own press release, so to speak. They believe their reputation, even though their reputation may not hold true. So when they would hear this idea, I know your works, they would be, all right, here we're going to be praised, here we're going to be commended. He says this, I know your works, you have a reputation of being alive. This church in Sardis has a reputation. They have a name. They are known for being alive. If you were to inquire with the people who were members of that church, participants in that church, active in the church, all of them would say, this is the church. You got to come to our church. Our worship team is incredible. The lights are amazing. The preaching is enjoyable, entertaining, whatever it may be. There would just be glowing reports of how this church is vibrant, 
alive, impactful, innovative, engaging, all these things. They had a reputation of being alive. They had a multitude of activities and undertakings they had. In our modern times, we could think of it along the lines of they had uh, summer camps and VBSs. They have game nights and movie nights. They have programs for teenagers as well as the senior folks. They've got Sunday schools for all age groups, activities galore, bus programs, concert nights. I mean, on and on. This church just there was always something going on, activities, etc. They had this tremendous reputation of being alive. And I will say this, it is a good thing to have a good reputation. Proverbs 21.1 says, A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches, and favor better than silver and gold. Rather than just having great riches now that could be temporary, having a great reputation is a better thing because it affords you open doors and opportunities that will go on and on and on in the days ahead. A good reputation is a good thing. Ecclesiastes 7.1 says, A good name is better than precious ointment. And this is a wonderful thing to see and a wonderful thing to hear. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, it speaks of um, widows who are over 60. Uh, if they're going to be enrolled to receive the benefits and care that would be afforded by the church, they should, it says, 1 Timothy 5.10, have a reputation for good works, brought up her children, shown hospitality, washed the feet of the saints, cared for the afflicted, devoted herself to every good work. It is a good thing to have a good reputation. And the church in Sardis had a robust reputation. They had a glowing report. They had an esteemed, renowned, and recognizable name. But that's not the end of verse 1. Christ himself, the head of the church, who sees and knows all with absolute perfection, clarity, wisdom, and truth, says, I know your works. You have the reputation of being alive, but you are dead. That robust reputation is followed up with a revealed reality. You are dead dead everyone says you're great i say you're garbage everyone says you are alive and vibrant i say that you are dead and useless this is a big difference uh, again in that passage in first timothy that's talking about the widows and those who should be enrolled and those who should be taken care of by the church it does warn of some and then who ought not be enrolled in that and ought not be taking care of the church. And it gives this warning in 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6. It says this, But the widow who lives for pleasure is dead even while she lives. So here is a strong statement in the scripture. She's alive, 
but there is a sense in which she's dead if she lives for pleasure. All the undertakings, all the endeavors, all of the activities count for naught, mean nothing, benefit nothing, reward nothing. God looks upon the, the activities and the engagements and the undertakings of this particular widow and he says, it's to me like you have not moved, like you've simply lain in a grave and that's it. Further, e even when we look at this, uh, that idea certainly transcends or carries over to the church at Sardis. Here they are. They have this reputation of being alive. They're coming to church. They're active. They're vibrant. They're engaging. They, they've got this great name. There seems to be all of these things going on. But if what's, what they're doing, if they're not coming together for the glory of God, for the gospel of Jesus Christ, that they might grow in the grace and knowledge of him, that they would ascribe to him glory, that they would sing to him praises, that they would make known his word and his will, that they would call people out of their sin, that they would encourage people and provoke one another to love and good works. If they're not reading the scripture and praying together in earnest, but they're coming together, and the thing that they're doing is, is they're coming for their own pleasure. They like the music and they would come whether it sang about Jesus or did not. They, they enjoy the, uh, the delivery and the engaging elements and anecdotes and stories that are delivered by the preacher so that they would come and hear him speak even if it isn't truth that he's speaking. We must remember in these days, these were not the days of the modern cinema. You did not go to the theater that has all of these different rooms that with Dolby surround sound, THD, blah, 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 all these kinds of things. Uh, the primary ways that people would be entertained is they would go to a theater where there would be actual people standing and speaking. They would oft be engaged um, as someone might deliver a monologue. They could oft even in be involved in entertainment as someone would share some sort of speech. And, and these were the more modern forms of, enter the, the more ancient forms of entertainment. Now, it's possible that we ourselves can capitulate and fall into those things and we can be going about church and indeed going to church, not for the sake of Christ, not for the saints of Christ, but going for our pleasure. There is a tendency in the day and age in which we live for people to even select their church as they come to a new town or as things are going on, on the basis of personal pleasure. Now, certainly, you obviously want to choose a church that does not evoke within you great discomfort and displeasure, Unless that discomfort and displeasure are evoked in you by the word of God that is confronting your life that is not in accord with the word of God. But uh, in a local university that where, where they have a church day where you set up a table and you talk to the uh, students, almost inevitably this, when the students inquire about the church and ask details about it, they don't ask 
What is the church's doctrine? What do you believe? What are you committed to? Tell us about um, the preaching. Without fail, almost the first and only question that is asked is, tell us about your worship. Tell us, do you sing contemporary songs? Tell us about your worship band. And, and the, the emphasis seems to be, will I enjoy myself? Will I have fun? Will I get this? And then churches end up sort of rolling into this with marketing schemes and presentations. And it, and it just becomes so challenging. You if you are given to pleasure, if now what I will say is this, in genuine, earnest worship of God and the receiving of his word, there is a deep and profound joy and a real and genuine pleasure. But it's a joy and a pleasure that one without the spirit of God will not receive when they come into that community of Christ. The Spirit is the one who engages us in that way. Um, but if the pleasure is such that any and all could be entertained and enjoy it, that is a degree of compromise. Now, I'm not discouraging that we pursue uh, doing things excellently. We ought to do our best, and our goal must and surely is never to displease. We're not anti-pleasure. But let pleasure be ancillary. Let pleasure be secondary. Let pleasure be a byproduct of the priority, which is to draw near to God in Christ, in the hearing of his word, in the singing of his praises. And so we remember uh, and we think about this. Jesus um, said to a group who was gathered and listening to him at one point in John chapter 5, verse 5, he said, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? The, the church's priority has to be the pleasure of God, the glory of God. Its goal must be that God would approve of all that we do. But if, if our motives become that men might ascribe glory, that men would be pleased, then, then we've missed the heart of what we're doing because Christ is the head of the church and all the parts of the body and all of the activity of the body is to rightly respond. To the head. In 2 Timothy, it warns of the day and age in which we live. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 to 5, it says, But mark this, there will come terrible times in the last days. And the things that are going to be listed here are surely prevailing in our days, but they're not new. They've been going on for some time. But listen to these things. People will be lovers of themselves. Lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, treacherous, rash, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having a form of godliness, 
but denying its power have nothing to do with them. There are those who have a form of godliness. It sounds godly. It looks godly. It looks like a church, has all of the trappings of church, has a lot of the language of church. It, it, it seems like it's right. It seems like it's for the good of people and good of society. But in the end, if they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, it is a form of godliness that is false. It denies its power. And the scripture here says, have nothing to do with them. The church in Sardis had a robust reputation, but the revealed reality is they were dead. If you were to in, uh, invite those people in and interview them, I'm sure that none of them would have looked at their church and said, we have missed the mark. We are failing our master we have gone away from our God. They would not, not say that. It's likely they would say, we are the best church in the area. But Christ looks upon them and says, what you're doing? Dead. Means nothing to me. It's not even the slightest move in genuine, earnest worship. The heart is missing. Your heart is misplaced and that's uh, uh we shouldn't find too shocking because such warnings come really um in isaiah chapter 1 verse 11 god says this to the children of israel he says uh what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices says the lord i've had enough of the burnt offerings of rams and of the fat and well-fed beasts i do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs, or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Well, who has required these offerings? Who has told them to bring these offerings, to bring these sacrifices of these particular animals and to shed their blood? God himself had requested it. So they are in part out Outwardly, visibly doing what he asked. They're bringing the animals. They are sacrificing the animals. But as they do it, their hearts, their minds, their faith, their commitment is not for God. They turn these feasts that would often involve solemn assemblies where their minds and hearts were to go back to and meditate upon God, on his power, on his deliverance, his salvation, his victories, his law, his covenant. And instead of that, they're turning these feasts into more what we might call modern festivals. Here in Marshall this week is a taco fest. And then there's a fire ant festival. And there can be all kinds of different festivals of which truth and godliness and God have no part. It was possible and indeed was taking place. The children of Israel were doing outwardly on the right dates and the right activities, but their minds and hearts were not in submission, service, love, 
earnestness, dedication to God. And so God looks at what they're doing in verse 12 and says, when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He says what they're doing, he does not delight in it. He's had enough of it. He doesn't consider it a, a, a wonderful pilgrimage. He considers it a trampling. He says in verse 13 of Isaiah 1, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. Speaks of their convocations and says, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Stop mixing the, the flesh and the sensual with the spiritual. Stop trying to... Uh, blend these things and, and why would we strive to see to what degree we can weave worldliness into the church now our goal is not to be outdated and old-fashioned and odd and peculiar even the goal isn't merely distinction the goal is dedication the goal is obedience. And so we ask not what men want. We ask not what men enjoy. And we don't go simply to the opposite of men wa what men want. We ask what God desires, what God has set forth, what God has ordained, and what God uses to the growth and benefit and enrichment to build up his people in the most holy faith. That we might come together, exalt, worship, and praise his name. And that he, by his spirit and word and, and our mutual fellowship, might work powerfully among us. Now when that takes place, it will look otherworldly. When that takes place, it will be distinct not through intentional oddities of clothing styles and, and peculiar things such as that, but simply distinct in its core, in its essence, because it is unwaveringly fixed on God. Back in John 5, it says you can't believe because you seek the glory that comes from men rather than the glory that comes from the only God. That's why we gather he says to them still in isaiah chapter one my soul hates your appointed feasts they've become a burden to me i am weary of bearing them when you spread out your hands so you can see them hands uplifted eyes out and when people visit a place like that look upon a place like that they say oh what life oh what spirituality oh what activity Oh, what abandoned, what audacious, open-spirited worship. But even though there is this, this vibrant display, hands outlifted, uh, uh, hands uplifted, arms spread, God says, I will hide my eyes from you, and even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. In Amos chapter 5, verse 21, it says a similar thing. I hate, I despise your feasts, I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. These very things that God had commanded them to do, he is now despising because the way that they're doing them is not in accord with the way that he delivered them. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will 
not accept it. People will come together and they will give themselves in some form of worship and thinking that they are pleasing and it's acceptable. But if it is not what he wants, it is not in his way, it is not acceptable. He says, I will not accept them, the peace offerings and your fattened animals. I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your song to the melody of your harps. I will not listen. You may have beautiful music, powerful music, loud music, but you can have all of those things and not have me and not be directed to me and not be looking at me and I will have none of it, God says. Oh, even uh, Ezekiel is warned that they can come together to listen to him and it says this, they will come to you as a people and they will sit before you as my people and they hear what you say but they will not do it. With lustful talk in their mouths, they act. Their heart is set on their gain. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs with a beautiful voice and plays well out on an instrument. For they hear what you say, but they will not do it. When this comes, and it will, then they will know that a prophet has been among them. This is what can happen. People can get so caught up in the pleasures of things that they will simply gather together to listen. But it's not simply about gathering together to listen, to seemingly sing songs. If we are not truly engaging our whole man, our whole inner man, heart, soul, mind, and strength in the receiving of God's word, and then with great diligence and dependence upon the grace of God, devoting ourselves that we might walk and live in that way, it's not church. No matter how loud it is, no matter how active it is, no matter how big the buildings are, no matter how broad the budget is, God's not impressed. God's not delighted. He's not pleased. And Isaiah 29, verse 13, there's a section there that uh, Jesus quotes in Matthew 15. He says this in, in Isaiah 29, 13. The Lord said, because this people draw near me with their mouths and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Their fear of me. The word fear is a, is a challenging word with many nuances in Hebrew. Many times it talks about ha uh, the word fear is not just a trembling and shaking and oh no. Uh, many times it carries a stronger sense for the children of Israel. It, it would have to do with worship. Fear could be a synonym for worship. So their worship of me. It could be a synonym for obedience or how we live or how we walk. And so it could be worship and walk. Their fear of me, how they worship and what they do, it's no longer rooted in my word. It's no longer rooted in my commandment. It's, it's a commandment taught by men. My name is still on their lips. They say they're drawing near to me. Their hearts are somewhere else. And all their lessons, all their learning, all their living is based on men's ideas, men's opinions, men's feelings. God's word just gets secondary notation. Sermons become a multitude of uh, 
anecdotes and anagrams and aphorisms and just filled with stories and examples and illustrations. But the actual reading and applying and opening and expressing of God's word is left off. Jesus said there in Matthew 15, 7, you hypocrites. Well, did Isaiah say of you, prophesy of you when he said this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me in vain do they worship me teaching as doctrine the commandments of men all of that worship though it may look like worship though it might be named worship though it might even to the eyes of men be considered genuinely active engaging enjoyable intense impactful worship if it is not rooted in God's word, if it's not rooted in his glory and pleasure, it's vain. It's worthless. It's just words in the wind. You see the sad revealed reality. They thought that they were right. They thought they were alive, but they were truly dead. Now we move on to, to, to see the third point, and we'll read that in verse 3. What is the required response? Having this robust reputation of being alive, but the revealed reality that they're not alive. They're dead. It's, it, it had said this in verse 2. I don't want to bypass verse 2. It had said this, Wake up and strengthen what remains is, is about to die, for I have not found your works complete in my sight. You, you can't shore the edges. You can't soften the end. You can't pick and choose what you want. It's all God's glory. It's all God's commandments. It's all God's word. It's all God's way. And he gets all the glory. Now, again, let's, let's move on then. What are, the, what are the required responses? The church hears this. And they are told this in verse 3. There are three imperatives, three commands in verse 3. It says, remember then what you have received and heard. Remember is the first command. Keep it, the second command. And repent, the third command. If you will not wake up, I will come to you like a thief and you will not know the hour that I will come. Remember then what you have received and heard. It's very important, their responsibility here as a church is not to sit together and develop a new marketing plan. It's not to form a committee to reconsider what is proper worship. It's not to take a poll what we ought to change. They are to remember. Note this. The doctrine, the truth, the scripture uh, reveals... The, the faith that we hold to. Jude says we are to contend for the faith that is once for all delivered to the saints. The faith. There is no novelty. There is no innovation when it comes to the heart of worship. And when it comes to the grounds of truth. God tells us by his word what is true god reveals to us through his word what is pleasing and acceptable 
we don't innovate. We don't move forward. We don't brainstorm. We remember. We remember what it says here, what you have received and heard. Well, this is a typical way of saying uh, uh, the, the message of the apostles. The apostles would come commissioned by Christ in that special role that they would have, that they would ultimately be used to lay the foundation of the church, that they would be the ones that would be used to write and attest to every section of the New Testament scripture. And it says this, uh, Philippians 4, 9, for example, Paul says, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Heard and received. What you heard and received. What you heard and believed. Stop trying to, to add to it. In 1 Thessalonians, it says this, we thank God constantly for this. In chapter 2, verse 13, that when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of man, but for what it is really, the work of God, the word of God, which is at work in you believers. See, that's what I want us to understand here. They understood that everything for them began when the word of God at work in them was delivered and received. And that is still going to be the core of what takes place in the church today. The word has to be, again, we're not putting the word in some way that supplants Christ or supplants God. But the, that what we are to know and what we can know about God and Christ is made known to us in his word. That's where we go. And we remember 1 Timothy 4.13, until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation and teaching. No compromises. Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who needs not be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Verse 16 says, avoid irreverent babble. It will lead people to more and more ungodliness. Don't just talk nonsense. Don't just share opinions. Don't just share feelings and experiences. Declare the word of God. Handle it faithfully. Set it before the people. Follows up here with what are the reliable results. The required responses are those things. Remember it keep it means now you got to do it you got to observe it you got to put it into practice and repent where you see areas where you've deviated you put pleasure in its place the pleasures of this world the priorities of men's desires where you've set up this notion that the world is somehow full of seekers even though romans 3 is so clear in verse 9 10 and following there is none that seeks after God, no, not one. You've somehow tried to accommodate the desires of the world at large. We don't do that. We want to please God. And we are confident of this. Because the Son of Man has been lifted up, He will draw all men to Himself. From every tongue, from every tribe, from every people, from every nation from every community, from every town, from every strata of society. 
he will draw all kinds of people to himself. That good shepherd will, in effect, through the gospel, call his own sheep by name and lead them out. They will hear his voice and follow him. And he gives unto them eternal life. The reliable results are this. If you will not wake up, one is negative and one is positive. If you will not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know the hour that I will come against you. The come like a thief simply speaks of the suddenness, the unexpectedness, because a thief generally does not come by your house the day or week before and say, on Friday at 11.30 p.m., I'm going to break into your house. Because if he did, you would either personally be prepared or hopefully, better than that, you would have the police there ready to lay hold of the individual. It speaks of utter suddenness. And the simple statement here in this passage is, I will come against you. Enough said. Christ, the one with the double-edged sword in his mouth, the one with the eyes of fire, the one with the feet like burnished bronze, the one who comes to judge the living and the dead, the one who is the head of the church, the one who ultimately is the declarer of the eternal destiny of all men. The one who, is the, who has himself decreed, God, Father, Son, and Spirit, decreed all the events unfolding in human history. The rise and fall of kingdoms, the establishment and destruction of, of temples and churches. I will come against you. What a frightening statement. But on the positive side, verse 4 says, Yet you still have a few names in Sardis. I like the fact that it says a few names. It speaks of that wonderful specificity and detail of the knowledge of our Savior. He knows who are those faithful ones. He knows them by name. And even though the church at large has seemingly wholesale abandoned, those who are genuine among them, those who are faithful among them, God sees it and he's not going to sweep them away finally with the rest of them. They are secure. They are safe. And it's important for us to know that too. Because sometimes we can look around and we can see various churches that have in our estimation, gone the way of Sardis with their commitment to all kinds of sundry programs and priorities. It seems Christ has been lost and it's hard to tell the difference between when you go there between an ordinary concert and what should be a congregation gathering for worship. It's difficult to tell the difference and it's hard to tell the difference between uh, uh, preaching and a comedian or a raconteur or storyteller. It's, it, it's hard to tell the difference between those things. Uh, but note this. Even in those churches, it's too easy and too quick for us to judge. You go to the, that church and assume that everyone who goes there is ungodly. Many of them may not be well taught and may not be wonderfully mature. And that would be because the church is not fulfilling its responsibilities. But he knows their name. 
Christ. And if their names are written in his book of life, as it promises in this book, those that he has engaged personally, known by name, and they know him, that he has brought them out, their names will never be blotted out of that book of life. The, that book is, in, in a sense, written with absolute permanent ink. Indeed, we might say permanently written in the book of life of the blood of the Lamb that was shame, written, uh, slain, written with the blood of Christ. It will not be blotted out. Every name that was written there before, as Jesus says in John 6, I will not lose a single of all that the Father has given me, but raise them on the last day. But what kindness of God that even if the, even if the church fails and even if a large scale judgment comes against them and we face some degree of the temporal loss of of circumstances and joys and benefits that might come against the church or even against the town or against the society or against the world. We know this. Our eternity is secure. I like the fact that they have not soiled their garments, their, their, their hearts, their priorities, their walk is in the right place. Sort of like when Paul speaks to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse uh, 14. He urges him, charges him in the presence of God in Christ Jesus to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ unstained you still have a few who have not soiled their garments they will walk with me for they are worthy i find that interesting because it says they are worthy and we we recognize this as we study the scriptures we we rightly note that no one is worthy of the grace of god no one is worthy of forgiveness no one is worthy of salvation it is all of mercy. It is all of grace. But that wonderful and true theology, we've got to make sure that we don't carry it too far into the realities and the blessings and benefits of the new covenant of God in Christ. Because once we are united to him, we are in a sense declared righteous. We are now seen in Christ as worthy and as acceptable. And by God's grace, we are able to a large extent to walk in a manner that's worthy. It says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, we exhort each of you and encourage you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Colossians 1.10 says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. What a glorious thing. Yes, we are not in and of ourselves worthy, but in Christ we have been made worthy. We have been made acceptable. We have been made righteous. And yes, we stumble and fall. And when we fall, it's as if our garments get dirty. But when we're down, fallen in the dirt on our knees, we cry out in repentance. We confess our sin. And he is faithful to forgive us our sin. And when we stand 
by his grace under his strength and continue to walk, we stand afresh as if we have been laundered anew. We are unstained. No sin will ultimately stick to us because of the mercies of God that he has given us in Christ Jesus. Ephesians 4.1, I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling of God to which you have been called. Look, I get it. Perfect worthiness, we can't on our own achieve. Christ has made us worthy. And when we stand before him, God on that last day in Christ, we will be worthy. But not only will we be worthy, and in him we are worthy, but because he is in us to a large extent, our walk can be characterized predominantly by worthiness. What a grace. What a power, which is why Colossians 1.11 says, May you be strengthened with all the power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience and joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints of light and light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transfer us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. Revelation 7, 14 says this, uh, of those who had come out of the great tribulation and having been martyred, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now, literally, that sounds strange because if you wash a white robe that's dirty in blood, it doesn't seem to come out white. But this is letting us know the source of that cleansing, the source of that perfect righteousness, our fitness, our worthiness, our acceptableness is in Christ. And we are now being transferred, transformed from degree to degree into the image of Christ. We are by grace walking more worthily as we walk because of Christ in us. He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. Four simple things that we've looked at in this passage today. This church in Sardis had a robust reputation for being alive. But the revealed reality, they were dead. Their hearts, their minds, their lives, their worship, their practice, their patterns were all in the wrong place. With a required response, they were to remember what they'd received and heard. Stop moving forward with their own feelings, thoughts, the teachings of men. Return to the revealed word of God. Keep it. Hold to it. Stick with it. Be watchful in it. Be alert. Be awake. Be ready. The required response were those things and repenting of what they had done and the reliable results. The, if they don't, Christ is coming against them. For those who by his grace continue to, their inheritance in Christ is absolutely sure. So this church needed to remember, and we need to consider, it may be this church characterized by complacency, thinking all is well, all is safe, all is good, just like those guards in those two historic times in history where the city 
had fallen and was overthrown. It may be that God himself even sovereignly orchestrated this city, this history, this complacency in Sardis that had led to their downfall, that the history of this city might serve as a glaring example and illustration to this church that the same complacency, the same compromises, the same lack of faithfulness, watchfulness, and readiness may indeed lead to their downfall. May God stir us up to remember what we have heard and received, to have, God willing, we will have a robust reputation, but it will be a Christ-seen reality, that we would see those responses required and we would live and walk in those responses because we know the promised results are sure to those who conquer. Let's pray. God, as always, we thank you for your word. There is nothing like your word. Everything that you would require of us, you have revealed. We thank you for the sufficiency of your word to equip us that we, for every good work, Lord, you revealed to us the, how to worship you, how to dr- approach you, how to draw near, how to engage the world around us, how to deal with one another when we see one another in sin, how to deal with ourselves when we're in sin, how to find strength and grow and overcome. Lord, we thank you for not only the sufficiency of your word, but the great power of your word by your spirit, that it is a living and active word. God, may we not somehow try to go to other ways and other means, but we come to you in earnest and pleading prayer. Let us be a people of prayer. We gather together and we lift our voices privately and publicly in praise. God, make us a people of praise. Oh, and also God, May we be a people who are committed to your word, to not add to it and to not take away from it the glory of your sovereignty, the glory of your salvation. To you indeed be glory in the church now and forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.